All right, guys, welcome to Salt City Church. It's great to have you guys here this morning, and I'm excited to open up God's Word with you. So we had kind of a fun weekend at my house because it was time to celebrate a birthday. And so specifically, my son Gabe's second birthday. And uh, so Gabe moved from the younger Sunday school class to the older Sunday school class, and so that's kind of a big deal. And so anyway, I love my son so much because I just find him absolutely hilarious. First of all, when you're two, you're just a hilarious human being. And then Gabe happens to be very verbal and very opinionated for a two-year-old. And so last night, we were having his second birthday, and we were sharing with him that it was his birthday. And so we said, Gabe, can you believe it's your birthday? And my son was sitting there eating a snack, and he goes, it's not my birthday. And I'm like, is this even possible? It, isn't this like the thing that you're supposed to be most excited about? And so all of us, my father-in-law's in town here, and my wife and I, and all the other kids are trying to convince Gabe of this amazing fact that it's his birthday. And he is having absolutely none of it. And so it was just so funny because we're all kind of taking different angles and we're like, okay, Gabe, it's your birthday. It's not my birthday. And he's like getting more mad about this. And so finally my father-in-law kind of goes over and we convince him that on his birthday he gets presents. And he still is unwilling to say, it's my birthday. But he's like, okay, I'll take the presents. <laughs> and you would love in those moments to just like climb inside that kid's mind and sort of try to figure out what's going on. Like, how could you possibly be offended by the fact that it's your birthday? When you're two years old, that's the greatest thing in the entire world. And here's what I was thinking about as I was watching my son do that. I was thinking about our study through the Gospel of Mark. And what we have is Jesus is on the scene. And he's been saying, I've got good news for you guys. I'm the king of the universe and I'm here to save you. And all you have to do is repent of your sin and believe in the good news. And over and over again, what we've been seeing is we've been seeing two basic responses to Jesus. And probably the primary one that we're seeing is people being offended by him. And the question is, why were they and why are we offended by the message that Jesus has to bring when it's good news? It's like Jesus is showing up and saying, it's your birthday. We're like, no, it's not. It's not my birthday. I'm not excited about this news. And what we see is something sort of counterintuitive in this text as we kind of continue to develop this theme. And we have essentially three negative examples in this text. But here's the big idea. It's kind of counterintuitive. It goes like this. That Jesus offends us because he values what is good for us. Did you catch that? Jesus offends us because he values what is good for us. In other words, we don't make any sense. We are at our baseline just illogical, crazy people. And so when we encounter Jesus, even the good news of his gospel, instead of re 
responding with joy, we respond by being offended. And so essentially what we're going to do is we're going to walk through three different ways that Jesus offends us. We're going to talk about how Jesus offends us in our religiosity, how Jesus offends us in our self-satisfaction, and how Jesus offends us in our sexual immorality. And then we're going to see how Jesus gently seeks to pull us out of our offense and into faith in him and joy and the good that he has to give to us. So let's just take those one at a time. First one, Jesus offends us in our religiosity. We're in Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 1. The text will be on the screens, but give you a quick second to look that up on your Bible app or in your Bible. By the way, if you guys don't have a Bible and you would like to have one, when you're leaving the service, we'd love to give you a Bible. You can just nab one off the table. It's our gift to you. So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief And he went about among the villages teaching. So what we have here is Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now imagine the scene here. Nazareth is a town of 500 people. The same size as Brewster, Minnesota. This is a small hilljack town. And Jesus was basically the equivalent of like a gas station worker back in the day in the town right? And people in his town had heard the rumors that Jesus is this big prophet, this big teacher, this big miracle worker. And Jesus heads back into Nazareth and he's at the synagogue, which is sort of like the religious, social, and cultural hub of this little town. So you imagine this, Jesus in his 30s, about my age, he's standing in the synagogue and he's looking out at a crowd of people many of whom he has known since he was in diapers. And these people are kind of looking at him and sort of investigating what he's doing. I'm sure there was some buzz around. It's like, Jesus is back in town. And it says their initial response is sort of one of astonishment. They're like, where did this guy get these things? In other words, what they're saying is like, people are not this articulate and do not have this much knowledge who come from Nazareth. In fact, In the Gospels, whenever the town of Nazareth is brought up, people's response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, this is not only a small town, it's a small town with a bad reputation. And so at first, they're like leaning in and they're like, okay, like, this guy's got some pretty significant things to say and Jesus is doing some relatively minor healings 
in front of them, and so they're sort of buying into it. But my guess is this was what happened. The message started hitting a little bit too close to home because we know that Jesus' primary message was repent and believe the good news. And so as soon as Jesus starts preaching about specific sins, the people go from astonishment and amazement to, wait, we know this guy. This is a carpenter. We know his brothers and his sisters. In fact, his sisters are actually sitting in the synagogue with them. And Jesus, on the spot, diagnoses what's going on in their hearts. He says, a prophet has honor except in his own hometown. Now, why would that be? Why would somebody whose primary gifting is characterized by truth speaking and specifically truth speaking about hard things, that's what a prophet is, somebody who speaks about hard things, calls people out for their sin. Why would that person in general have more honor sort of out there in the big city more than in the small town? Well, imagine this. Imagine what's going through these people's minds. Wait, if that's God standing in front of us, if that's the Messiah, if that's the Savior of the world, and he lived in Nazareth for 30 years, that means he knows everything that I ever did. That means he knows about when I stole nails from his carpentry shop. He knows the rumors about who I was sleeping with. He knows everything about me. He was part of that conversation where we were sort of gossiping about that other person. He was sitting there. He heard me. You know how small towns are. Everybody knows everything about everybody. So if Jesus is from your hometown, he knows it all. And so they have this basic decision in front of them. Admit that what he is saying is true and that he is God. And admit that the whole culture of our town is essentially tainted with sin or go into denial immediately. And instead of falling on their face and saying, wow, the savior of the world came from Nazareth, this town of 500 people. Instead of doing that, they're offended. They get mad. You know how small towns are, right? They tend to be sort of isolated and they get in sort of this judgmental attitude. And it's because everybody from small towns is essentially the same. They look the same, believe the same things, all that. And so Jesus comes in and gives this hard-hitting message. And he knows everything about everybody. And they're just unwilling, even though it's the logical thing to do, to sort of let go of their religious facade and just admit what's true. And some of us are like, whew, I'm glad that God didn't live in my small town because then he'd know everything about me. 
Good thing we dodged a bullet on that one, right? Well, I've got sort of bad news before the good news comes for you. Did you guys know that what the Bible teaches is actually that the entire world is Jesus' hometown? That he is from outside of this world and he is actually present everywhere, which means he's seen everything that you've ever done. Here's what scripture says in Acts chapter 17, what the apostles preached after Jesus rose from the dead. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. You can't get any closer to someone than that. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So the Apostle Paul, years after Jesus rose from death, says Jesus is still alive. And he has seen absolutely everything you've ever done. You know, it's very easy for church communities to take on sort of this small town type identity. Right? It's easy for us to stop being followers of Jesus and sort of become this religious, closed off group. And what Jesus would say to us is the same thing he said to his little hometown. You have a choice. You can repent of all of your sin. And you can just own the fact that basically many of the things that you've done have been wrong. Or you can begin to be offended by Jesus. Even as I read that, maybe you started getting offended. Like, wait, God's not a judge He's love. And you start sort of buying into more of a cultural version of Christianity rather than a truly biblical version of Christianity. And as your pastor, it's my job to tell you the truth. And I'm telling you, you can either agree with Jesus now and say, yeah, you're right. Show me my faults. And you can be saved forever. Or you can refuse Jesus. You can be offended by him and say, thanks, but no thanks. And one day, he will hold you accountable, scripture says, for every single idle word you have ever spoken. So Jesus offends us in our religiosity because we can't keep ourselves from being exposed. No matter how secure our hometown feels, he is from there. Secondly, Jesus offends us in our self-satisfaction. So he sort of offends us communally. He says, hey, the way that your hometown operates, it's not according to my plan and design. You got to repent. But he also offends us individually in our self-satisfaction. Verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals. 
and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now notice what Jesus does here. He tabs the disciples to be his representatives in the world. He endows them with his authority. And the reason is for the sake of the mission. He sends them out in order to spread the good news. So what's been happening in this entire region is that Jesus has become incredibly famous. And he's been known as the same things that we've been learning him to be. He's forgiving people's sins. He's touching people who are ceremonially unclean. And he's making them well. He is so countercultural in such a beautiful way. And people are actually running out of their houses and literally crowds of thousands of people are going to see him. And the most broken among the people are going to Jesus just to touch him in hopes that they could get some of what he has, in hopes that they could be healed. And there's this sort of buzz in the whole community. Could this be the savior of the world? And so he sends his disciples out and they're supposed to go into these very specific towns. They're supposed to go urgently. He's like, just grab a few things and go. And I want you to go to these different houses. And essentially, you're supposed to knock on the door and they're supposed to preach the gospel to people. They're supposed to tell them, hey, the king, Jesus, he showed up on the scene and your calling is to repent and believe the good news. The Messiah has come. And Jesus gives them this warning, sort of this prediction about what's gonna happen. You would think that at the very least, if somebody came and they said, hey, I'm good friends with Jesus, he sent me, and he had something that he wanted me to tell you, you'd think at the very least that people would open their door, that they would sit down with his disciples, and that they would hear them out. And here's what Jesus says is going to happen. There's going to be people, as you go out to tell them the good news, who will not even listen to what you have to say. Now, what would cause a person to do such a crazy thing? You would have to be thoroughly convinced that you are not one of the people that Jesus came from for. You are not a person that is in need of his healing touch. You've heard the rumors. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. He came to bring physical healing and spiritual healing. The only way you would not hear the disciples out is if you think that you were a spiritually satisfied person. And what Jesus says is absolutely tragic, isn't it? What do you do? 
Do you barge your way in? Do you say, no, the news is so good. You guys got to hear this. Do you kick down the door? Do you light the house on fire so they run out? What do you do? And he says, shake the dust off your feet. In other words, if they won't even take the time to listen, there's no hope left for them. Think about this scenario, guys. Imagine you're fighting in a war and you get captured and you're in a POW camp. I love watching old like World War II documentaries and stuff like that. And you hear the stories of people that were once in a POW camp. And there's sort of a progression to these stories, right? It's like, we heard that the rescuing army was on its way and that the war was about to end. So in other words, the rescuing army's purpose became famous, right? And then what happened is we actually saw them off in the distance. And then finally, they came to our camp and they rescued us from years of imprisonment. Now imagine if you were a POW, you're in your barracks, You've heard all the rumors. You saw them coming. The army became famous too. You're sitting in your barracks and the rescuing army came and you weigh like 60 pounds and you're totally famished and you're about to die and they knock on the door to your barracks and with all the strength that you have, you get up and you start pushing back on the door. It's like, I don't want what you guys have. I'm happy here. I've made this friend with this rat. We kind of got this thing going. I'm good. And they sort of try to take you with them and you are absolutely 100% convinced that your life is fine in the barracks. What else can they do for you? If you're so self-satisfied that you won't even be rescued, what else can be done for you? And this is what Jesus says. He gives this warning. He doesn't kind of scale it back, but actually in the Gospel of Matthew, we're given a couple more details, and it gets sort of ramped up a notch in, in a very disturbing way, actually. Matthew 10, verse 15. Jesus said this, Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. You guys remember what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah were totally just entrenched, specifically in sexual sin. And Lot moved there. And the people even tried to drag out the angels who were staying in Lot's house to have sex with them. And Lot stood his ground. And God did not want to destroy the people. So they were told to repent, but they refused to repent. And so God actually rained down fire and sulfur from heaven on them 
Because they were self-satisfied. They were fine living in slavery to sin, of going back to the same sin over and over again, experiencing the guilt, but rather than admit that they were guilty before the God of heaven, instead, they just more resolutely committed themselves to a life of sin. Jesus is talking about hell. Guys, as your pastor, I have to tell you that hell is a real place. And I think specifically in our culture, this is really hard for us to understand. And I'm not claiming that I understand it. I think sometimes that there can be this perception that as pastors, we sort of just come to the text and it's really easy for us to believe everything that it says and we just come up here and talk about it. But to be honest with you, I'm baffled by hell. I don't understand it. And I think this is what baffles us about hell for those of us who believe that hell is a real place. We don't understand the severity of the punishment. Eternal conscious torment. That's what we believe about hell. That if you refuse to receive Jesus and his finished work on the cross for you and instead you choose a life of sin and you refuse to repent, you're so self-satisfied that you won't receive what he has to offer, you will spend an eternity in hell. And the problem that we have with that and the problem that I have with that even as I stand before you today is I don't understand eternal conscious torment. Okay? But let me shift the conversation a little bit because I want to talk to you about sort of a log that I see in our culture's eye on this one. So our culture would be very critical of hell. And yet, when the public sins of individuals come out, what we see in our culture is moral outrage. And yet, if you sort of pull the curtain back on what our culture actually believes, what you have to conclude is that our culture, generally speaking, believes that there is no judgment after this life. Which means Adolf Hitler and Martin Luther King Jr., are both six feet under, and neither of them gets rewarded or punished for what they did in this life. To me, that makes this life and justice, which our culture holds to be a great core value, especially in our days that we live in now, it makes justice obsolete. There's no such thing as justice, if you don't believe there is a God and that he will judge us. So here's how I deal with this intellectually. I say, I know that there's a thing uh, called justice. I can feel it intuitively. And I walk through my life, and you know, you watch shows like Dateline or 60 Minutes or different things like that, and they talk about people who um, were murdered, and they're trying to sort of solve this unsolved case. And I watch those shows and I always leave confused. Like I'm like, what would I do if I was on the jury? Like what is an appropriate punishment for that crime? And given the fact that I have such limited perspective, it's so hard for me to even 
understand like what justice is. So here's what I do. I say, there is this thing called justice. I don't know what it is. I'm going to trust God. And that his judgment of what is right and what is wrong and the punishment that will be doled out to each individual is just because I know that God is good. And so I would encourage you as well to really think through these issues and instead of to immediately fill in the gap with offense, to really study these things for yourself and to fill in that gap with trust. Okay, last thing. Jesus offends us in our religiosity, self-satisfaction, and lastly, he offends us in our sexual immorality. One of the more troubling stories in the Bible. Mark chapter 6, picking up the story in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So here's the bottom line. John the Baptist was speaking truth about sexual immorality to power. So John was in prison because he had been calling into question Herod and Herodias's illicit relationship. So what had happened is Herod had been married to one woman. He went on a trip to Rome. He met his brother's wife. They apparently started an adulterous relationship. And both of them divorced their spouse. And now they were married to each other. One of our elders in training pointed out that John had the audacity to treat the royal family the same way that he treated everybody else. I like that. I think that's true. 
John was telling everybody in that whole region to repent of their sin. And so John was God's man. And so when he saw sin, he called it like it was. And I just thought about this story and I thought, man, doesn't this story come at a great time for us in our culture? We have a man who's in power, who is using his power to get what he wants sexually. And we've all had the question as we've scrolled through our news feed or gone on different websites or watched the news, how should we as Christians respond to these men who have used their power to abuse women sexually. And we see a little bit more of a window into this, right? Herod's character. He has Herodias' daughter come and dance for him and his noble. She was likely a teenager, and this is likely a striptease. So he's not only committing adultery, unlawfully divorcing his wife, marrying someone else, he's also abusing a 14 or 15-year-old girl and putting her body publicly on display. And the first thing that we notice in John the Baptist's response is that being God's man, he calls sin, sin. It's a really important thing for all of us as Christians, regardless of our political affiliations or anything else, to be willing to call sin, sin. Because we are not primarily Republicans or Democrats. We are primarily Jesus people. Which means when someone is in power and they use that power to sexually abuse a young woman, no matter who that man is, who that woman is, we say that is wrong. And I want to say right now, I am so sorry if that's you. Because it is guaranteed that there are women in this room who are experiencing these allegations against these men in a different way than I could ever imagine. Because you are one of those women. And you've been abused by one of those men. And we have to say, God absolutely hates that. He sees it, he knows about it, and there will be a judgment. And yet we see something kind of crazy happen in the story. It's a reversal of what we think will happen. You notice... John is preaching truth to power, but he's doing it in such a way that Herod actually wants to hang out with him. Isn't that interesting? It says he's really perplexed by what John is saying, but he hears him gladly. So John is not yelling. He's not the guy with the bullhorn and the billboard. He's having a rational conversation about real sin face-to-face with Herod. And the one who really gets mad about this whole thing is Herodias, right? So the girl dances, and her striptease apparently pleases Herod and all his perverted friends. 
And he asks her what she wants. She goes back to her mom. Her mom says, this is a perfect time to get John the Baptist killed. And so he gets his head cut off. You speak truth to the wrong powerful person and you might get your head cut off. And we're left wondering at the end of the story, will there be justice? And we're left also, I think, wondering about ourselves. At least I hope we are. Because I think the first response that we have to give to the sexual sin out there in the world is we need to condemn it. But then we have to realize that we are not innocent in the matter. You see, divorce and adultery and abusing young girls, all those, those things are all wrong, and God hates those things. God's law is much more exacting than just a few neatly packaged sexual sins. This is what Jesus says about all of our sexual sin. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We have to be careful that as we speak truth to these men who are in power and as we talk about these sexual allegations against them, we must not make the mistake of taking our sin lightly. Guys, I do not stand before you as an innocent man, sexually speaking. I'll never forget um, when Melissa and I were engaged, we did premarriage counseling, and I confessed to the godly man who was doing our premarriage counseling that I occasionally looked at pornography. And I'll never forget him looking me in the eye and him telling me, Drew, when you go into this marriage, you have to have vigilance when it comes to your sexual sin. And here's my encouragement to you. Get rid of your computer. Don't have internet in your house. This is serious. And I had a decision in that moment. I could have been offended by what he had to say. I could have said, you know what? You're taking things a little bit too far. I have a right to have a computer and internet in my house. But by God's grace, I was initially offended, and then I listened to what he said. And guys, I'm here to tell you that one decision saved my life. It's the reason that I'm up here in front of you. And I want to plead with you to see these men who are getting exposed as what you will become if you do not repent of your sin. And it will be much worse than having your sin up on CNN or up on Fox News or up on Twitter. You will stand before the judge of all the earth. And if you are living consistently in sexual immorality, the Bible is clear that the sexually moral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's a question. What would give us 
the audacity to tell the world about our sin, to confess it, to own it, to say that the problem is not someone out there, the problem is something in here. What would give us the audacity to do this? We see in the story what happens is John the Baptist's head gets cut off and his disciples go and they lay him in a tomb. And they're sad. But do you know what? John's example does almost no good for us. His example of being a righteous man who did the right thing at the right time does almost nothing for us. But I'm here to tell you about a righteous man who suffered and what he did matters for you. You see, there's somebody greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, from the beginning of this gospel, he told us that he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals. And that's because Jesus didn't just do the right thing one time. Jesus did the right thing every time. There was no sin in Jesus' life at all, whatsoever. And what happened was Jesus took your place. You see, your sexual sin, your self-satisfaction, your sort of hometown mentality, your judgmentalism towards others, God's pronouncement over you is guilty. And so the question is, how can God love sinful people? And the answer to that is the cross. Jesus has already paid the penalty for all of your sexual sins. He agrees with your assessment of yourself in those moments of guilt that you deserve to die. And instead of making you die for your own sin, he paid the penalty for you. So you know what that means? We can joyfully repent. We don't have to suffer the consequences for our sin forever. We can be forgiven. We can rejoice even though we are great sinners, our Savior is greater than our sin. And that's what we're here to proclaim each and every week. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So my encouragement to you, let go of your sin. Confess it. Get in a small group. Tell everybody all of it. Let them know. Let the chains fall off. Trust in Jesus and follow after him with us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing. Thank you that you made a way to hold the line, to do justice, and to let us go free. That's amazing. We want a God of justice who punishes the guilty, but we can't bear that punishment. And so thank you, Jesus, that you bore that punishment in our place. I pray for that person whose conscience is troubled. They're just wrestling right now. I just ask that you would release us by your spirit to be able to quickly confess our sin, run back to you, and enjoy the joy of walking with you, Jesus. Amen.